if someone had told me how difficult it would be to raise money. Or what we now know at the time, the stats around uh, women and women of color raising money weren't really well understood. So mm -hmm. I was having this experience that I now, that was later validated with numbers. Of it's really, really hard. And, and the, everyone can look at the stats. They're pretty grim. But I didn't have that perspective. And so you kind of get up every day and you, and you keep trying. I did have the benefit of uh, some great mentors and also just this tenacity and, and uh, I'm just one of those people that will never give up kind of to a fault. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out of the box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest podcast. Let's get started. Sharice Hawkins, CEO, founder of PageDip, builder, learner, risk taker, motivator, rainmaker, speaker, corporate escapee, creative minded CEO with a strong engineering background, proven record in meeting impossible deadlines, delighting customers and reimagining how things can be done believes anything is possible in the digital world. Sharice is an engineer and technologist and has a passion for driving the evolution of digital narrative content and believes that she has the best job ever as founder and CEO of PageDip. As an award-winning business owner and accomplished international speaker, Sharice loves helping others on their life's journey. She appeared in Vanity Fair and on Shark Tank, ABC's uh, Shark Tank. Sharice's background includes working as a Walt Disney Imagineer building theme parks around the globe, as well as joining Time Warner Cable, where she served as a vice president of software development and holds two degrees in engineering. I can't even tell you how excited I am to have Sharice on the DealQuest podcast. Welcome, Sharice. Thank you, Corey. It's nice to be here. So folks, uh, Sharice and I have really just started to get to know each other, but it's like totally connected on our, <laughs> on our prep calls and, uh, and it's just, you're in for a real treat. So, Sharice, before we start talking about deals and what you're doing now and, uh, you know, all the great experiences you've had, I want to take you back to when you were growing up as a little, little girl, 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because my guess is, you know, being an entrepreneur and uh, raising capital like you did and being in the digital space uh, might not have been it, but tell me if I'm wrong. You're correct. That was not in my, uh, my brain at the time. Like a lot of uh, little girls in my era, I wanted to be a ballerina. And so I took dance classes. I still enjoy dancing. I still take dance classes, including aerial dance. But I think the sphere and the, the draw of, of technology just wasn't part of the, the ecosystem. I grew up in the Midwest. People acknowledged that, that I was smart and I, I liked learning. But the idea of technology and the idea of science just weren't part of uh, the kind of educational systems or the kind of even programming that my daughter who also became an engineer, by the way, grew up with. So it wasn't until I got into high school that I realized uh, the potential of those kind of careers. But my mom tells this funny story about um, there was this one particular Barbie like kitchen that was a um, it was called a carousel kitchen, and they and it, it did all these little things where it would move and spin, and it broke, and I took it apart and I put it back together and I made sure that it worked. And she claims that that was her first inkling that um, I was going to be an engineer because I, I took apart this Barbie, this Barbie toy when I was really small. You and my brother would get along great because my, <laughs> my brother, I never had that skill. My, my brother would be like eight years old in a, you know, and I'm, I'm going back. He's, he's younger than me, but he's still in his fifties. And, uh, and he, um, you know, he would take apart like a transistor radio, right? That was broken, uh -huh. and put it back together or like all these other things. And it, and it would work. And sometimes like he wouldn't even have all the, all the pieces back in it, but it would work. <laughs> and I never understood screw. how he could do that. I just don't have that skill. Yeah. It's so satisfying. Though, and I, I tell people that, you know, engineering is one of the best jobs in the world because there, there is a sense of immediate gratification when the code runs or when the, when the project works. It's just exhilarating to have that happen. Love it. All right. And one more question going back. Um, what was your first deal of any type 
whether it was when you were a kid or older or whatever, like anything that happens to come to mind? My first deal. That's a tough question. I don't, I don't think about the world of deals or even think about the term until I became an entrepreneur. But I do think in corporate, understanding um, how decisions are made and how big deals are made uh, within our organization was really eye-opening for me. As a technologist, I thought, well, you have a bake-off and you look at what's, what criteria needs to be met in order to make the right decision. And that's the product you go with. Or that's the service that you go with. And I learned, as we all do, that there are a lot more factors how you make a decision of, of which way you're going to go than just what technology is the best. There's a lot of other, other concerns um, that are not just technical, not just by the book. Yeah. I'm interested to hear how that sort of learning, uh, you know, played into how things, uh, uh, you know, evolved for you. So let's, let's start talking about that. I mean, you know, your bio says you're a corporate escapee, <laughs> you know, you've, you've obviously made that jump some time back from the corporate world, you know, some from great corporate experiences to, to being, you know, an entrepreneur and, and uh, raising capital and having all these great experiences. Talk to me a little bit about how did you make that jump and uh, not only the circumstances, but also, you know, there's a mindset shift, right? Not, not everybody is cut out for that. Yeah. Talk to me about uh, some of your experience around that. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think there's a lot of factors, including uh, where you go mentally to make a decision to, be, to, to take an entrepreneurial journey. Mm. And I worked in some very, very large organizations from Walt Disney Imagineers to uh, very media, large media companies like Time Warner Cable before they were purchased by Charter. So I didn't have that, that experience of working in any small companies before I started my own. Uh, and like a lot of women that I've, I've learned now, um, I decided to start this journey later in life. So I had a daughter who was in high school. Um, and I told my husband, I'm not going to, there's certain things that I won't put on the, you know, uh, put in jeopardy as I start this journey. And one of them is my, our daughter's 529. So I decided that you know, <laughs> making sure that she could go to college was a really important milestone for us to be able to uh, take this risk. And I knew it was a very big risk. Um, but there's also risk in not uh, following your dreams and staying mm -hmm. in, a, in a situation that um, was very safe, was very rewarding, but a little bit too safe, if you know what I mean. So I, th that thrill of going to work every day, we'd produce some fantastic products and they'd gone out to millions of people around the world. And I realized that I like starting things. I like the challenge of, will it work right? And having to strive and struggle to make sure that things get to where you need them to be. And when they get to close to steady state, that's not my favorite part of the project. And yeah. I've been at my last job for almost 10 years. Um, through many different, you know, different roles, different projects, but it just felt like it was time. It was time to go. Much to my husband's dismay, he's like, "You have this great title. You have a corner office. You have a bonus structure." Um, <laughs> but there's there's something in your heart. There's something that draws you, you know, out into this entrepreneurial journey. One person said, "It's when you can't ignore that voice anymore. When you can't say no anymore, that it's time to go." And I got, I definitely got to that point. And I recognized that the way we communicate, how we communicate. The tools that we had at our disposal uh, with digital you know, tools and, and technology, there's a lot more potential for how we could do better. And I, and I wanted to lead the way in that. I love it. And, and listeners, I, I'm a little bit laughing, uh, although I don't know how old Cherise is. She, she would have made it, made it sound like she did this at, eight, at like 60, you know, later in life, which is, <laughs> which is definitely not the case. I can tell you that much. Even though I, um, so, um, you know, it's, it's funny. I think there's this myth around entrepreneurship because of, you know, you hear about these, uh, you know, 17 and 22 year olds and whatever that, you know, uh, and if you look at the statistics, it's actually statistically, there are, you know, many, many people who start, you know, companies in their 40s, 50s and 60s, actually, you know, you know, it's, it's a myth that it's, you know, only the 22 year olds that are starting companies. So uh, I think, um, you know, that later in life comment, uh, you know, it depends on who you compare it to, right? <laughs> well, I did start in my 40s. And, my, and yeah. I remember that my mom said, you know, what are you doing? And I, I started, I started the company. I also started doing something called aerial dance when you climb fabric to the top of a high ceiling and then unfurl in these really cool, beautiful ways. And she said, oh, yeah. you're too old for this. And I, and I looked at her and I'm like, what does that mean? Like that just doesn't work for me. Uh, if I'm interested in it and uh, I'm going to go for it. And so we, we laugh about that because I, I, I might be the oldest person to have started uh, doing that activity as well. But no, seriously, I do. I did learn as, as you said that, there are kind of like two phases of life that people tend to start organizations when they're really young, they don't have a lot of responsibilities. And then when they've got a little bit more, like I said, the 529 was in the bank, 
uh, they feel like they won't provide any additional hardship for their, you know, their children, for example. And that was really important to me. Right. And it's time to really pursue, pursue the dream, right? You know, and, right. and do it the way you want to do it. So, so give us a couple of, you know, just a couple of minutes on, on what you're actually doing now and what, you know, uh, living that dream. And then we'll move into talking about some of the deals you've done. But, you know, tell us what, uh, what the company does and, and who you help and all that kind of great stuff. Absolutely. So um, the easiest way to describe PageDip is uh, I really think of it, it's what Microsoft Word would have, been de- would have developed if they had created a word processor in the time of the internet. So we look at how people communicate, how we read information, often on mobile devices or different size screens. And we created an editor that allows you to uh, marry in what we refer to as core content with all other sorts of media elements. And so by bringing this narrative flow um, concept to the, um, the power of how we can add additional information um, right into the middle of uh, what you're trying to, to share, this experience of being able to stay on one page, delve deeper into all sorts of adjacent material, make sure that material is up to date, make sure that it's uh, measurable, give people analytics around what the experience is like, um, and have it be in a secure wrapper um, is mind-blowing for uh, the organizations that we support. So it's typically enterprise uh, companies, and the content that they produce using page that we call them page dips, um, are these interactive, measurable, engaging, secure documents. Um, and we've done everything from educational, leadership educational materials to post-op care for a children's hospital where the, the actual nurses were in the editors creating these great experiences and delighting the, the parents of children who need to understand how to take care of um, of their, of their loved ones. So imagine a document that has all the beauty of being able to read and skim with all of the media elements that you could imagine to really understand the core content. It's quite amazing. Love it. So folks, and, and we'll obviously, um, Teresa will give her contact information later, later, it'll be in the show notes. So you can go with, you know, check out all the great work that they're doing. So when you started PageDip, did you anticipate from day one that you'd be raising capital? Uh, did that come later? Uh, did you raise capital from day one or later? What, t- tell us the journey around uh, capital raising, um, decision-making and planning. Sure. I put a little bit of my own money in um, to start the company. And then interestingly, I found it difficult to find a co-founder to work with. I had an idea of what I wanted to do. I have a lot of experience in, in communication and entertainment. Um, so I felt like I was really well-suited to tackle this new era of how we communicate. But people who were kind of my peers in that, you know, kind of early 40s world didn't want to take the risk. And so I ended up meeting um, a co-founder, the person that became the co-founder, who was a new graduate from CU. Uh, I met a mutual friend. And we went off, having only met each other three times beforehand, to Australia to a startup accelerator. And it was there that the idea really was able to incubate further. Uh, We got a lot of great mentorship. And really starting to understand what raising capital can do to kickstart an organization. Now I understand that there's really great pros and cons to bootstrapping versus bringing in outside capital. But I do think that going to the accelerated program, we realized that raising capital made the most sense for a number of different reasons. Was this a, was, was this a technical co-founder that you brought in? Uh, was that yes. the need you have? Okay. Which is yeah. what I sort of assumed, but I, I just wanted to be clear. Uh, and then how did you come to find out about this uh, accelerator in, in, in Australia? There is a, um, a, a wonderful woman by the name of Jana Matthews, who is a Kaufman fellow and her expertise is around helping organizations grow. I had met her briefly in Boulder and saw her speak um, at, in Boulder before it was the announcement of her going off to do this accelerator uh, as part of the Global Accelerator Network. And um, we sort of exchanged information. And I heard by, by starting to follow you know, her path that uh, they were accepting companies from around the globe. At first, I thought that was going to just be in Australia. So Alex and I applied for the program with very, very little thoughts that we might get in. And much to our surprise, found out that we were ex- accepted uh, into this accelerator, which was based the, the first class that they'd had. And we had, I think it was something like three weeks to get there. So going from Boulder, Colorado to, to Australia with three weeks notice, um, you know, what do you do with the dog in the house? And the, so <laughs> it, was, it was a really great start to jumping into the entrepreneurial journey, frankly. And it also was a great way to understand how to work together 
with a co-founder. I highly recommend being able to go with your team to an environment where you're really having to figure it out um, in real time every day. I think it set the stage for how the company grew later. Um, and you asked about the first deal. So we, through demo days, we did a pitch. We had a number of investors interested in our idea, which has, of course, pivoted since then. Sure. So that's what all startups do. But that was the beginning of our fundraising journey. Love it. So talk about some of the lessons on the fundraising journey. I mean, you mentioned the fact that after the fact, you sort of got a bigger appreciation for the distinction between raising capital versus bootstrapping and things like that. And, you know, it was sort of like a, uh, listen, like, like any founder who's never raised money before, you learn as the journey goes um, yes. and you make decisions with the information you have. So, it's, you know, tell us about that fundraising journey and the lessons you learned from it, uh, good and bad. I laugh because there's a number of things about this, this path that I think if someone really had sketched it out for me, I wonder if I would have taken the leap. You know, when you know, right. it's kind of nice to not know what you don't know in the beginning because then you have the, the energy and the enthusiasm to go through. If, if someone had told me how difficult it would be to raise money or what we now know at the time, the stats around uh, women and women of color raising money weren't really well understood. So mm-hmm. I was having this experience that I now, that was later validated with numbers. Of it's really, really hard. And, and the, everyone can look at the stats. They're pretty grim. Um, but I didn't have that perspective. Um, and so you kind of keep get up every day and you, and you keep trying. I did have the benefit of uh, some great mentors and also just this tenacity. And, and uh, I'm just one of those people that will never give up um, kind of, to a fault. Uh, but raising money did take quite a, a while. We've now raised, we've had two uh, rounds of seed investment. And I guess the, the three things I would tell people who maybe haven't raised before is it takes longer than you think. Uh, and certainly if you're female or a person of color, it is a full-time job. And so there's this tension between needing and wanting to run the business and move the product forward and the reality of how all-consuming the fundraising effort is. And I think everyone thinks, oh, that won't be like that for me. I'll be able to do both. And and the the reality is that it's a full-time job. And the last piece is really being able to, I had some interesting experiences. I had some people say, this idea is too big. Why do you think you can pull that off? Um, And I've had people say, you're not thinking big enough. You know, why why can't this be a multi-billion dollar um, company? And so there's a lot of like internal dynamics and there's a lot of um, kind of mindful or thoughts that go in your mind that are, are interesting along the journey that I didn't expect. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com assessment. That's coreycupfer.com assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. Yeah, so let's explore that a little bit. I mean, you know, the, the more common one of those two that entrepreneurs uh, who are raising money of all, of all backgrounds often hear is, you know, I don't think the idea is big enough, right? I mean, the whole concept of especially venture money is mm-hmm. that, you know, they, you know, they want to pour gas on a, you know, on something that's really going to then accelerate and they're going to make, you know, many multiples, not just two, three times, right? You know, they're right. looking for that unicorn, uh, you know, uh, interviewed uh, uh, Nick Adams, who's a, a VC with the uh, founder of Differential Ventures, uh, whose episode will air uh, probably a, uh, maybe a month before yours, you know, who talked about the fact that, you know, uh, velocity, you know, is important, uh, you mm-hmm. know, they have a fund, they have capital, they're deploying, they have investors, all that kind of stuff. So that's a common one. But the, the conversation uh, on the flip side about, you know, that's too big, you know, I, I'm wondering uh, what are the dynamics, if you're willing to talk about them, because I have some assumptions on what might have played into that, uh, at least part of that, because that's, that's something I think that you'll hear less commonly from VCs or at least most founders will. Um, so any thoughts? Yes. Yes. You know, I've really reflected on this, and this will probably get a little deep, but um, as a woman and as a person of color, everything that you experience, you, there is another filter that you have of would, would someone have said that to me if I didn't look the way I, I do? And, yeah. I, and you'll never know because you, we don't live in that world where you get to, to do things over right. and, and come right. in right. with a different... You don't have the alternative universe where you can... Right, you can right, where I could right. dress differently or look differently. And, but I do think that just based on my corporate experience, that we still have some stereotypes and some assumptions of what uh, technologists look like. 
And so one of the things I interpreted was, this is a really big undertaking. This is, this is, I really think this is the new way that we are going to communicate and that we are at an inflection point where we're, we're changing the way people will experience content forevermore. That's a really big, bold statement. And, you know, in a five-minute pitch, do you have time to uh, explain what your, your technical prowess is and your background and how you deployed products to, to 13 million subscribers? Do you have an opportunity to talk about, you know, building theme parks from the ground up and literally being a part of the, the teams that do that? No. And so you, you have to uh, somehow convey that confidence and that expertise um, sometimes that's a lot of nonverbal pieces. And so I learned um, from that experience to find ways to bring that, that background more to the forefront and maybe even taking a little bit longer than others may need to or want to, to talk about those accomplishments and to really own the fact that I am a technologist and I am a visionary. What are some things in my past to, that prove that point? Because uh, we still have, even though I, you know, my daughter's an engineer, as I mentioned before, we still have a lot of preconceived notions about what intelligence, what passion, what um, uh, entrepreneurs really look like. That's, it's exciting to be able to break those molds. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I think the conversation of implicit bias, which is inherent, in, you know, in, in a lot of what you talked about in general, you know, if anybody, you know, has really done any study on it is, uh, you know, is there, I mean, whether it's the studies on resumes that have the, the same exact resume with different names, one that yes. sounds white and one that sounds black, or the studies or, or the actual experience they did when they started with, uh, with orchestras uh, and, yes. um, and doing blind, um, you know, blind rehearsals yeah. and the, uh, the shift that happened in gender certainly was huge and in, in, in background, you know, in race and ethnicity mm-hmm. in terms of the makeup of the people who got accepted. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, that's there. And then on top of this, you have the engineer part, which is like, I think there's another <laughs> layer of assumption, you know, built in implicit yes. assumption beyond the general, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just any entrepreneur trying to raise money. So I think you had a double whammy there. But what's also funny is, you know, engineers are, I have a, I'm data driven. When I ask a question, I'll tend to answer it more literally or with more facts. And, but that's not to say that you can't have a vision or reach for the stars, or I think engineering is one of the most creative roles or creative jobs on the planet. And I absolutely love it. But sometimes that interest in and guidance uh, by data can be a little bit in contrast with the view of, uh, you know, you might ignore the facts and shoot for the stars. I think that they can actually coexist and, and you can be more, more effective by having both parts of your brain working on the problem. You know, even the, the, the engineering, the, the attitude around wanting to do your research and providing, you know, very diligent answers can sometimes be perceived as a little bit of a wet blanket on a really, really big idea. So I've, I've learned to tone that down a little bit, I think. Mm. So I want to take us even a cut deeper. And I, uh, I feel like uh, because of our off-air conversations where you and I have, uh, I think, connected on been aligned on so many levels. I hope I have permission mm-hmm. to do this, um, which is, uh, you know, we've taken it a cut deeper just in terms of some of the other factors that may be, uh, may have been a play externally in terms of you as a woman of color, you know, and, a, and an engineer presenting. What about the internal journey around that, right? You know, in terms of whether it was uh, you growing up and, you know, what you thought was possible and the journey of you know, how do you get to the point where, because uh, I'm sure there must have been a journey where you not only can say, I'm going to be an entrepreneur, but I'm also, I'm somebody who's going to raise capital. And in face of all of these obstacles, I'm not going to quit and I'm going to make it happen. Like, there's got to be an internal journey that went along with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, first of all, I, I mentioned before, I'm, I'm tenacious to a fault. And one of the things that I've really grappled with is when and if do you say that this is enough and, and you can't get there from here? I haven't found that place yet, but there's <laughs> definitely been, there've been low points. There've been challenges. There's been self-doubt. And I strongly believe that if you can see it, you can be it. And there's yes. not a lot of, I had the opportunity to be in the magazine Vanity Fair a couple of years ago where they brought 26 women of color who'd raised over a million dollars. And the, and the point of that was, not that it's not possible, but look, like we could all fit in a really small room. Like it just, there just weren't a lot. And I, and I didn't, I only know, I only knew about one of them before I went to that photo shoot. Um, and so there's a little bit of a challenge of, uh, you know, it, is, this, is this possible? When you're the first or when you're one of the first, 
it's it's a little lonely and there's a there can be a lot of doubt of whether this is really possible and um so you you grapple with that and then you have to figure out how to um look it in the eye and then also continue to move forward and take those small wins and look at where how far you've come um each and every day but I would, it would be, I would be remiss to not say that there are, it does play in your mind. There's, there's a little part of your brain that's always processing, um, you know, is this, is this possible in, in our society, in our ecosystem mm-hmm. right now? Um, and, and how can I make it more possible? Uh, because the, the numbers aren't great. And the, uh, you know, there's not a lot of Time Magazine covers of, of people that look like me who have, have created uh, billion dollar companies. And so it is a challenge. Um, it is a little bit of the dark side of what you have to face. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting for me because I always look at the layers because uh, I mean, first of all, the number of businesses owned by anybody, including white men, right. Who uh, uh, raise capital is a tiny percentage. The, the number of those businesses that have a million dollars in revenue above is in single digits, right? So like just mm-hmm. starting, like j- j- just that journey for anybody is, you know, a, uh, you know, a, you know, a, a interesting journey. And I know folks of all backgrounds who suffer from, you know, we all have some level of imposter syndrome and, you know, like, am I really good enough to do this? Uh, and then when you layer on everything else and, and, you know, I think it's why representation is so important. Uh, and I think those of us who, uh, listen, I'm a, a, I'm a, I'm a white man, right? Uh, it's, uh, it's been a journey for me over time to understand because of course my default is seeing me represented on, you know, uh, as CEOs, as entrepreneurs, heads of companies on television, on, yeah, you know, as played on TV, uh, that's you, right. <laughs> you, know, and, you know, as, as you know, every president in the United States up until Barack Obama, you know, it's like, yeah. you know, so yeah. uh, I mean, it, it's, it's a default way of being. And I think those of us who, uh, you know, um, are, uh, you know, in the majorities, so to speak, uh, in terms of various uh, backgrounds and identities, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's much harder to understand what the lack of that kind of representation, you know, the, the, the impact has. Um, and, you know, the only thing I can extrapolate from is sort of being a low middle class kid growing up in Brooklyn where I didn't have, we always had food on the table, but, you know, we didn't have, you know, it was paycheck to paycheck kind of thing. And, you know, even that, when I first stepped into the big legal world, dealing with super successful people and companies, you know, when I was tw- in my 20s, was intimidating. And I was sort of like, you know, am I supposed to be here kind of thing? Like, I don't, you know, mm-hmm. it's not my world. Right. And that was, you know, just, just, just from uh, sort of, you know, economic uh, differences. And then when you add, you know, but yet uh, I had the advantage of being a while, uh, a male and, and being white. Um, so, you know, I think representation, I don't know, just representation is just so, so important. And I think we, we tend to, uh, we both, from people that we know, we help people that we know. Um, our, our circles, you know, how do you make sure that your circles intersect? Um, there's, a, there's a friend of mine who's a CEO and he said, yeah, if I run out of money, I can just, I can just call. You know, he, he has a couple of people in his network that are really, really high net worth. Yeah. And he just in passing and I thought, wow, what's it like to, to be in an environment where you have a couple of people in your really close network that have really, really high net worth? It, it is one of those moments. I hadn't thought about it before, but that's not my reality at all. So uh, there's just subtle uh, things that come to, come to light. Um, on the other hand, I think that part of uh, success and part of, like you said, that internal, internal journey is you have to pull from your own stores of self-worth and empowerment and creativity and curiosity. And uh, my take is, okay, uh, Maybe this isn't the easiest path, but what are some creative ways for me to figure out uh, how, to, how to, to continue to make this journey worthwhile and how to give more than I'm, you know, how to give more to our customers than they expect. And at the end of the day, I think that's what proves that, that businesses do succeed um, with some of those very simple, um, uh, the, the attitude that, that comes with, let me be of service and let yeah. me make sure that we're doing the best thing that we can. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, the, the minute you take money, right? 
You're in a very different position as an entrepreneur. Um, you know, there are, you know, one of the reasons we become entrepreneurs is that we have a vision and we want to be on our bosses and make our own decisions. And, and I'm not saying the first round of capital, you know, I mean, depending upon how your deal is structured, et cetera, you still, you know, have a decent level of control, but it's, it is different. The minute you have responsibility to an investor, uh, they may have certain legal rights, uh, you know, or input, certainly over time as you raise capital, that may, that may increase. But even just the concept of having other people's money, even if they don't have any kind of legal control, I think shifts things. So I'd love to hear your perspective, you know, uh, on that, um, you know, and there's, and there's good and bad, sometimes there's challenges, but there's also obviously opportunities out of that. Um, what's your, been your experience? It's been great to have, um, first of all, people believe in our vision and see the potential for how uh, this type of co- uh, content can change, um, can, can really have a positive effect on businesses and, and society at large. Uh, and one of the things I think is interesting is some of the, uh, we've had investors of, you know, kind of, with, of all different sizes and, and some of the investors uh, who have put in, you know, smaller amounts of money have been those that have been the most challenging to, uh, to, to deal with. And others, um, you know, there's always a, it's like a bell curve. There's always a few that are, that really have your back, that really, uh, want to open those doors that are really you know, kind of keeping the product and, and, and the success top of mind. And then there's also a collection of, of uh, you know, more passive investors. Without that entire spectrum, um, you know, our cap table would not be, uh, you know, we would have raised the amount that we did. Um, so there's, a, there's a, an additional level of responsibility, um, but there's an additional level of capacity for influence, for advice, uh, for um, you know, really helping helping guide the the journey of the product. So, one person talked about mentor madness. Uh, you you kind of learn who really is aligned with uh, the vision of the product, um, and we've gotten very very close uh, to those investors, and several of them have have you know come into the second round. So, um, overall, I would say a very positive experience, but um, I didn't realize that. Uh, you know, there were, there's kind of like the, the passive investors, there's the strategic investors, and then there's also um, maybe people that, at the, I, I want to be a, a, an angel investor, that's one of my personal goals, um, but, you know, just because you've put some money in does not mean that you can make all the decisions, and I think it's important to, to have that, set that expectation, have people understand uh, at the end of the day that the company has to make some decisions um, to make the, the product and the customers happy. So it, it, I, I didn't expect, uh, you know, like I said, one of the more junior investors to, to be the most challenged. <laughs> and it's, uh, I'm, I'm sort of giggling because it seems like, I mean, that, that's, that is not only just your experience, you know, it's, uh, it's always, Am I not alone? The, 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 the smallest clients are the ones that give you the most, <laughs> yes. the smallest uh, investors are the ones that give you the most yes. you know, it's, yes. uh, it's, it's funny how that, uh, how that happens. Um, you know, and listen, and the cons, you know, I love the fact that, you know, and I have this conversation with people all the time, you know, the, the concept of strategic, you know, investors and, uh, you know, and you, and you hear that, um, uh, you know, I mean, uh, especially people raising their, their, their first, you know, uh, in their first company, uh, you know, may think I just need the money. Right. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's interesting. I've had, I remember, uh, you know, when I had to be, uh, way back probably over a year ago when Niles Heron was on the show and, 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 um, you know, he, you know, he, um, talked about how, you know, if all you need is money, you will, you will find the money. And I know, and, and by the way, he acknowledged, he's, he's not true of color as well. He acknowledged the difficulties, well, whatever. Um, but he talked about how companies think that they, they just need money, but really, and one of the things that he's focused on helping companies with now is, is really, Hey, well, maybe your great product isn't quite as good as you think it is. Like you think, you know, you know, or maybe your marketing really does need to step up and, um, you know, and, uh, and so, uh, I think uh, some initial founders, at least, I think people have been in the game a little bit really understand it, uh, may undervalue the strategic benefit of the right investors as opposed to just getting a check. Yes, I totally agree. Um, one of my friends and a serial entrepreneur, successful entrepreneur in the med space who lives in the UK said, uh, uh, all money is green. It's been the same way, but who's behind that and how the strategic element is something that you really have to pause and consider. 
Um, and it's one of the reasons, frankly, that I was really interested about, about being on this show is we are actively interested in more strategics. And again, given the background and, and my past, that has not been uh, an area that I could easily tap into, but it's one that I'm keenly um, aware of now and very curious about and, and striving to learn more about and uh, invite those kind of conversations into our existing um, our product and ecosystem. Love it. Love it. Um, all right. So let's talk a little bit about, um, let's uh, shift gears uh, because I want to hear, uh, you know, you you, uh, you were on Shark Tank. Uh, obviously, uh, there are a number of number of limitations that you know people things they can talk about, and not talk about legally when they're on Shark Tank. We've had some other. Precious Williams was on the show, and she she had a Shark Tank experience that she shared. Um, and uh, and you know, and and it's interesting. I, um, I mentioned. Uh, Nick Adams' uh, interview, which comes out about a month before you as uh, from Differential Ventures, I remember a part of the conversation I had with Nick was, you know, he was saying that, you know, in part, uh, you know, like the shock tank mentality with some uh, uh, entrepreneurs is a problem in that, you know, it gives a misimpression. Like, you know, in other words, you know, they're very, uh, they look at technical investing. They have very like strict, you know, sort of tight yes. criteria. And, uh, you know, they get, you know, like most VCs, they get, 3,500, you know, uh, uh, yes. proposals and, you know, and, 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 uh, you know, um, so, uh, you know, this, uh, I mean, on the one hand, I, I do believe in theory, anybody can raise capital because I believe in the human potential. I think anybody, you know, in theory has that uh, potential, but the truth is that first of all, very few companies should even raise money. Uh, and, you know, uh, most people just don't walk into uh, a room of investors like Shark Tank and have the opportunity to pitch them. Right. Um, so talk a little bit about that experience uh, in general, any you know, cool stories you have and, and maybe how it compares to the real world of racing. Real world, oh my God. That's, the, that's the first place to start. So first, you know, when you become an entrepreneur, everyone runs up to you and says, oh, I have this great idea for you. You should be on Shark Tank. Right. And, um, you know, I'm an, I'm, an, I'm an engineer and I'm an entrepreneur and, and I'm also an introvert. Like I, I, I do, you know, very well in, uh, in, in presentations and things. But at the end of the day, I would call myself an introvert. Yeah. And so uh, what, there's a, several things that I could talk about on Shark Tank. But the first one is um, it's a reality TV show. And I think because of, because of my background, uh, we, went, we, we went in thinking, much more like it was a traditional, not traditional, but a standard pitch. And it would sort of, the merit of the product and the merit of our, our pitch would uh, be you know, a large contributor. Just back to my days as an engineer saying, well, you know, we'll do a bake-off and whichever product win, you know, does better, that's the one we'll buy. Well, that's not what reality TV shows are about. So um, just not really acknowledging, we are on stage, we're on TV, it's a TV show as opposed to a way to raise money was one mindset shift that I would encourage everyone who wants to go on a Shark Tank to really consider. Um, and also we are a, a relatively complex um, product and, uh, and you can't, it's not like a, a, a cup or something that you can, I've developed this new idea and you can just swipe your credit card and buy it and exposure on national television will have will, will warrant you know, millions of of individual con, you know, consumers so a b2c product right, right. Um, so that in and of itself i think was one of the one of the hardest uh, most challenging things about being selected in the game of the show is that we weren't b2c and so we didn't see um interest come from customers that could just drive our revenue um, and the third thing that I will say is the people that have reached out, the individuals that have reached out to us, there were, there were hundreds of people and I responded to each and every one of them. Um, I'm not sure that uh, individuals who purchase th uh, products through Shark Tank are necessarily your ideal customer either. So it was, um, uh, it's something I'll certainly tell my grand grandkids about in terms of moving the business forward. Uh, it, it was not time well spent because of that B2C component. Um, but we got some fantastic advice um, from Barbara Corbin, and she said, um, you know, this, I can see the potential and how this will really change. I'm not even sure this got edited into, because it gets heavily edited. So I'm not sure if what she said that I remember um, ended up in the final episode, but she said, um, your belief in your product and your belief in how you change the world is what really makes companies um, successful. And so I took away what I needed to take away from that experience. Um, we didn't get a deal, uh, spoiler alert, 
Um, and every time that it's, it's rerun, uh, the phone runs off the hook and people want to want to know about a product that we actually have moved away from because now we support only enterprises. So it was, um, it was definitely a tale, but I would tell people if you don't have uh, a customer facing product, then it's probably not, uh, it's definitely not, not the right avenue for, for exposure. You know, it's interesting. I, uh, I was at an event where uh, Kevin O'Leary uh, was speaking and, uh, and one of the things that he said, and he said, I think he said this on the show as well, and it, it really makes sense to me and why it really, you know, for B2C, it, you know, it is potentially different. It's perfect. It's perfect. And that is, you know, in B2C, what he said is that the biggest thing that Shark Tank does uh, is, um, is uh, uh, significantly reduce the customer acquisition cost. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. That's effectively what it does because you get this huge exposure, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, customer ac- acquisition cost is huge in a B2C market. Yes. Um, and, you know, if you could accelerate that and reduce the cost of it because you get all this, you know, crazy exposure on the show, uh, then it makes, uh, you know, your company more profitable, growth more quick, and, and you're more investable. But that doesn't really work the same way on a B2B business. So. Right, right, right. Yes, we had, we had um, the World Health Organization reached out to us and said we're interested in uh, the potential of what you have. And that's a whole other story. Um, but that, you know, there is an opportunity to get exposure to the types of organizations that you'd be interested in working with. Um, but it's, it's certainly skewed towards, uh, towards in consumers. Yeah, yeah, totally good. Okay, so um, before we start to get into the last uh, couple of questions and wrap up, um, Anything else? Uh, I mean, you know, this is a very broad question and you've had so many amazing experiences, um, you know, but anything else in terms of the uh, sort of journey, whether it's raising, raising capital or any other kind of deal? I mean, listen, being in a business partnership is a deal, right? Even, mm-hmm. you know, even, you know, uh, you know, how you do with that. So whether it's in that area or raising capital, or any other kind of strategic alliances or deals you've done, um, you know, anything else you want to sort of mention uh, that's of interest or lessons you've learned or th- things that were useful to the audience? This, this is an odd one, but you asked for, you know, for whatever comes to mind. Please. I think that the, the opportunity to continue to sit with the vision on some frequency is really, really important. So you, you've mentioned a number of times the internal work. Yes. I think that as you start to, a CEO is a, a really challenging job. No one tells you that when you start off, it means, yes, you're talking to the investors, but you're also taking out the trash. It's, like, it's, it's a really broad uh, role in the early days. And um, I think that it can be, become so frenetic and so um, all-consuming that you can leave some of the reasons why you started the company, or you can, you can sort of drift from some of the reasons you started the company. So um, one of my uh, never-break um, uh, routines of the day is to spend seven minutes and it's not a long time, but it, 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 when you've got so much going on, you've got so many emails to answer and so many things to do seven minutes and think about what's the future hold not for our product, but also the vision for how we see content evolving. Um, mm. And some of the best, most important um, uh, approaches that we've taken have come from that thought process and then talking about that thought process with my team. So I guess there in all the craziness and all of the activity that goes on with being an entrepreneur in this ecosystem, having a little bit of stillness, even for seven minutes a day has made a huge difference. And I didn't learn that um, or didn't start to practice that until we'd been at this for a few years. Well, I, you know, so I feel like, of course, at, at the end of our time here, you've opened up a topic that I feel like we could spend another hour on, uh, <laughs> is, you know, uh, practices, uh, you know, as entrepreneurs or as business people to stay connected to vision and to, you know, to stay centered. And, and mm-hmm. it's something that I super believe in. I mean, I have all these, you know, I, I have these end of year completion processes, these, you know, uh, uh, 531 visioning uh, process that my wife mm-hmm. and I do every year and, 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 you know, the ways we stay connected to it and displays and, you know, uh, and all kinds of stuff. And I think this is such a, uh, you know, folks, I, I actually want to just take a couple more minutes on this, even though we're running a little longer, because this is such a crucial conversation um, for, uh, you know, uh, uh, entrepreneurs, whether you're raising capital or not, building a business in any way, um, because it's so easy to get caught up in being in reactive mode, right? And, mm-hmm. and you know, and, and you mentioned, uh, Sharice, the 
you know, so the, you know, uh, I, I love the comment you made earlier about, you know, uh, it's sort of better that I didn't see the whole journey or know <laughs> yes, it. I wouldn't absolutely. have done it. I, I think every entrepreneur really feels that way. It's like, you know, you, you, you know, you just knock them down as they come because, you know, if you saw the whole journey, you'd be like, yeah, no, maybe I'll just keep that. <laughs> You know, um, but um, uh, but yeah, but but I think one of the biggest things that has us as entrepreneurs deal, be able to deal with the ups and downs and the challenges and the obstacles, uh, you know, is being uh, having ways that we connect to that 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 bigger vision, that purpose, that calling, as mm-hmm. my wife would say, we'll plug for her book, The Calling. Um, uh, you know, uh, you know that 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 we re- are able to get reconnected to that uh, bigger vision. I, I keep uh, mentioning uh, my interview with Nick Adams, but it just seems to be relevant here. You know, he talked about how what when. when um, when he, uh, when he, they look for founders, yeah, they look for people who, you know, they want to lose tech, one technical founder, blah, blah, blah. But he really talked about how somebody had something bigger that was driving them. Like that's their secret um, uh, vetting, a real big vetting thing is that they want somebody who has something that's bigger that's driving them, whether it's, a, you know, a vision, their purpose to make a difference, to, uh, you know, just their wanting to prove, you know, something, you know, about themselves, their lives, their family, whatever it is. Um, so, I think this is such an important topic. I'm glad you raised it. I agree. And um, there's, I, 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 this is going to sound crazy, but I truly have had this experience. I think being an entrepreneur is like seeing a shadow or, or, or a ghost or something kind of in, in your peripheral vision. And you, you, start, you start to turn to it and you see, you can, you can see um, more details about it and you can, understand uh, what the future holds and and you're sort of drawn to uh, the art of what's possible there. And the challenge is, as you spend more time understanding the potential and the impact and the, the, the positive contributions that whatever this idea can make, um, it becomes more and more real and you start to pursue it and get closer to it. And everybody else in the room still sees it. If they see even the faint shadow or the, the, the outline of the ghost, um, it's so um, not tangible to them and so you're kind of bridging this world of what could be and what you can see so clearly and you're explaining to someone that can't see it at all and there's times that you think oh my gosh i'm it's me i'm i that's it's not really there and then you have these little wins and these experiences and when people use a product and they go nuts and you think this is ah this is why i'm doing it but it it, you do kind of live in this the world of the future and, and what is tangible and what has happened and what's right right now where you're explaining things to people um and they're like I, I don't see what you see yet. Um, it's, it's exhilarating, but it's, it can also be really frustrating. Um, but it definitely, I feel like uh, those, those people that have this experience, um, when I describe it, they, they nod and they say, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. There's that, uh, that future that you can see really, really clearly. Yeah, and it, and it, it raises two things, and then uh, I'll just make these comments and we'll... We, We'll have to move, but I, I, like I said, we can spend an hour on this. Um, raises two things for me that I fundamentally believe, and people have heard me say, you know, on this podcast and all the content that I do. You know, one is I truly believe in that conversation of that. You know, you wouldn't have the vision if God, the universe, love, whatever, whatever your construct is. You know, like it wouldn't come to you if you weren't meant to meant to fulfill it, right? There's a reason why that vision, that dream, that, you know, calling comes to you. And, you know, that's, you know, what we're here to do and just, you know, to, to trust and honor that. And then the second, um, uh, you know, the second thing about it is that um, the fundamental belief that, you know, and I say this all the time, that, that everything, everything that exists in the world has been created twice, right? Once it, it's created in somebody's vision in their mind, right, before it's manifest, whether it's the share that I'm sitting on or whether it's the company that I built or the company that you built, right? Everything is created twice, once mm-hmm. in somebody's vision in mind and then, and then it manifests in the world. And it can't manifest in the world until it's created the first time, you know, in, in, in somebody's vision. And when you combine that with the fact that it's your vision and not anybody else's, that there's always a period of time where you can see it clearly when others can't. And part of, I think, the game is to enroll, whether it's investors, employees, customers, you know, in that vision. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, great stuff. Okay, so, uh, Sharice, before I ask you my last question, um, what's uh, the best place for people to find out uh, more about you and PageTip? Uh, pagedip.com is where you can find more information about us. Um, and uh, Sharice at pagedip.com is my direct email. And I, um, I am a crazed person when it comes to uh, responding to everyone that reach out, reaches out to me. 
to support others um, as well as those that are interested in our company and our product. Love it. Love it. So my final question on the podcast is always um, the same, which is uh, uh, freedom is my highest ideal in life. Uh, I, I have a, my intent.org little uh, bracelet thing that I wear that has the word freedom on it. Um, and for me, that ranges from everything from uh, like big issues like freedom from all people from oppression <laughs> and, uh, you know, to the reason I'm an entrepreneur, right? And I run my own show and I don't work with somebody. Um, so uh, what, is, uh, what does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and, 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 and business? Freedom to me is um, the, the opportunity to make the choices that uh, will be most fulfilling in your life. And I'm keenly aware of uh, the differences in that capacity and that level of freedom for people around the globe in the U.S. Um, and for, for very different reasons. Uh, but I, I do think in some ways freedom can be a luxury um, that, that some people have more of and others, others have less of. I think that for me personally, um, being, ha- having the freedom ha- has been um, expanded through my education and through my striving to, you know, kind of have, have this more entrepreneurial and, and engineering led journey. Um, and so when, when you said that word for me, education came to mind and thinking about the doors that have opened and the things that have happened uh, because I've, I've, chosen to educate and I've uh, chosen to free my mind to, to pursue other interests. So I love the question. Therese Hawkins, thank you so much for being on the DealQuest podcast and for bringing all of the value that you have to our audience. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.